Christ, King of all things, was wrapped in flesh and laid in the manger. He walked through Judea and Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom. The church people ignored his message, thinking he could not be a king. He worked wonders with his royal hands, and by his royal decrees, the lame walked, the deaf heard, and the lepers were cleansed. Still, he was ignored. When his kingdom threatened the kingdom of the pious, he was crucified, his crown was thorns, his throne was a cross, and from the cross he issued his royal proclamation, Father, forgive them. He died, a dead Messiah with a failed kingdom. The church breathed more easily, secure in its own kingdom. Then he rose, his sacrifice complete. He was given the throne of the Almighty. His kingdom will have no end. The spirit of the king was sent to me, bringing me to faith. The spirit breathes in all me, and I am made part of the kingdom. As a kingdom person, I see the king all around me, in the poor and needy, the sick and hurting, the lost and lonely. And I am moved by the spirit to share the news of the kingdom with those who need to hear it. The kingdom is restored in me. And the day will come when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, and he will take his eternal throne. Thy kingdom come, Lord, in me and through me. Please be seated. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hopefully you all have a, a message outline that says sheep or goat, you decide. That's why I brought this along today. I think you've all seen this. And I think uh, most of us know that uh, Jesus is the good shepherd, but he calls pastors under shepherds, which probably means that they too have the responsibility of dividing the sheep or the goats, or at least giving people an opportunity to figure out which side they may be on. Being a shepherd doesn't necessarily sound like a cool thing to me, but poking a few goats does sound fun, and maybe occasionally grabbing a sheep back from the edge and pulling them back in the flock also seems like a worthwhile activity. Now, to understand a little bit more about what we're talking about regarding sheep and goats, on the top of your outline, you see a section of God's Word from Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to read it to you beginning at verse 31. And this comes from the New Living Translation. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or, and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality 
or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. You know, what I like most about Jesus' method of teaching is the way that he almost always says the opposite of what you would like him to say. In fact, that's true of the account that we just heard there. To modern ears, what Jesus told us to do might sound a little strange, might even go against the grain. In fact, modern people who've heard this story, I had a one man tell me one time, he said, why should I bother helping someone else? They certainly wouldn't help me. And you know, if we try to suggest to other people that not helping someone would be committing a sin, they would probably call us a fundamentalist, right-wing, wacko Christian. But you know, even that too is not a new reaction. I mean, many people who have heard Jesus teach were outraged at what he heard. Now, I want to tell you that if you understand who Jesus was talking to at this time, that little story that I read you would have not only shocked people, but they would have been extremely angry hearing what Jesus just told them. I'm going to point out what that was that so upset them and so angered them in just a few moments. But isn't it interesting how many people really did not like Jesus? I mean, how many times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do we think, hear things like the crowd was angry, or the crowd got angry, or they plotted together to kill him, or they tried to grab him so they could throw him over a cliff? Indeed, we know that the people in the Bible went so far as to actually crucify Jesus, and they did it without any evidence whatsoever. This just shows us that Jesus' teaching was, and still is, unfortunately, very difficult for some people to accept. Now this morning, I want to take a look at this passage and see how we as modern readers can learn from Jesus' controversial teaching. Now if you had your Bibles, what I would do is I'd point this out to you, that this little story, Matthew 25, is part of a longer series of teaching by Jesus about the end times. In fact, I have shared a couple of end time messages with you already from this series. You may remember the message called, Is There Only One Way to Heaven? Or maybe a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to you about wise and foolish virgins. In chapter 24, right ahead of this chapter, Jesus talked about destroying the temple and then building it back up again. And then he goes on into chapter 24 and says, when the disciples say, what's it going to be like when the world's about to come to an end? Jesus lists a bunch of signs of the end of the age, and then he tells them a bunch of parables just to get them ready for the end of time. But if you back up a little bit at chapter 24, he gives one of the clearest references to the coming end of the age in chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. Let me read these words to you. He said, immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then at last, the sign that, and catch this, the Son of Man is coming, will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world 
from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now I accented a little phrase, the Son of Man. You already heard that one time in our initial reading from chapter 25. Now where does that little phrase, the Son of Man, come from? Well, the people who were listening to Jesus teach that day knew exactly where that came from. How have you ever noticed how Jesus quotes the Old Testament? And how sometimes Jesus only quotes a little bit of it. Well, Jesus doesn't have to quote a whole lot of it. Why? Because most of the people had the Old Testament, the prophets, memorized. When Jesus said something, people could immediately expand on what they already knew. So here in Matthew 25, or Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, in Matthew 25, he said, it'd be like the Son of Man coming back to judge the world. The people immediately knew that he was talking about Daniel chapter 7. And I've got that on your outline. I want you to look at that and notice how similar it is to what I just read. Daniel says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, if you were to lay these three readings side by side, Daniel 7, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, you would see some interesting parallels. Jesus uses this word, son of man. Now, most theologians would agree that when Jesus used that word, son of man, he was saying, I am the son of man. So in Matthew 25, verse 31, that you have before you, when it reads in your text, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, what Jesus was really saying was, when I come back, when I come back with all of my angels, and then he goes on to claim, when I come back, me, Jesus, the Son of Man, all nations are going to be gathered together before me, and guess what, that doesn't do much for you, but that really got the attention of the people who are listening to Jesus that day. I mean, that's a huge claim for a Jew to make. His hearers would have been absolutely shocked. They would be shocked to think that Jesus, this man, this carpenter's son, would actually call himself the Son of Man, that he would identify himself as being really God. They would have been absolutely outraged. See, Jesus was teaching Jews and he was teaching his disciples, but then all of a sudden he makes a right-hand turn, and this is really the first point on your message outline. He's now talking to all the people in all nations. Up to this point, they were okay with Jesus just talking to a few Jews, talking to his disciples, but now Jesus was meddling in their religious life. Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, and someday I am going to come back, and people of all religions and all backgrounds and all races are going to be judged, how? According to my standards. That's what he told them. Now, it's kind of sad because we don't understand what's going on sometimes in the Bible, but it would have been very interesting to have been in that crowd that day 
because those people would have been looking for stones to stone Jesus. Imagine Jesus' gall to stand up and say, I am the Son of Man, and someday I'm going to gather everybody in this world in front of me. It doesn't make any difference who they are. We're even going to have people of all races. Now that kind of fried the behinds of some Jews who had not much to say or not much to do with people who were not Jews. They were an extremely racist group of people. Now you can almost see the reaction of that kind of statement even today. I mean, there would be outrage. There would be people today who might stand up and say, why should we believe in your God? Or a non-believer might say, well, that's okay for you to believe, uh, but when I die, something totally different is going to happen. But I'm here this morning to tell you, friends, that as true believers in the one true God, we have to, we have to uh, agree and accept that all are subject to God's judgment, not just people who believe in him. At the end of the time, God doesn't just get together people who, who believe and judge them. It's everybody. If we kind of step outside of our modern worldview for a moment, we're going to see that that's probably the fairest way of dealing with humanity. Now, I've had somebody say, well, your God deals with you one way. We still kind of believe in the same God. He's going to deal with us another way. I got news for you. That's not very fair. If God made different rules and different requirements for different people, it would be unfair. On the other hand, if God had one set of requirements for all the world, then we all have equal chances. Now, let me give a little illustration to, to help out. Imagine you've got a family and you've got two children. You've got a 12-year-old boy and you've got an 8-year-old boy. And you say to your 12-year-old boy, if you're a good boy, you can stay up until 9 o'clock. That's one rule. And then you turn to your 8-year-old and say, if you're a good boy and you wash the dishes and you take out the trash and you mow the lawn, you can stay up till 9 o'clock. Do you think you might have a little argument in your house if you set down two different sets of rules for the same thing. You know, it's not fair. Why should I have to do the dishes and take out the trash and mow the lawn and he doesn't? See, that example shows that if we were judged using different standards, it would not be fair. So we find that even though it sounds like it goes against the grain a little bit, Jesus' teaching here really makes a lot of sense. It's fair to judge everybody by the same standards than to use different standards. Now, I've got to tell you that some people look at this little story about the sheep and the goats, and they say, oh, so this is what you need to do in order to be saved. No, Jesus is not talking about this as being something you need to do to be saved, but we as, as Christians, we know that salvation is, has been bought for us by Jesus' death. It's not something we gain by something we've done, but rather by something done for us. Now, I'm going to explain in just a little bit why this passage, uh, why I don't think this passage gives us a mean of, means of salvation. But maybe at this point we should talk about this, this little question, what makes someone a sheep or a goat? How many sheep do we have here this morning? How many goats do we have? Well, how can you tell the difference between a sheep and a goat? Well, we've got to go back to our text, and we've got to allow our text to help us. This is what the Bible says. It says, we can tell a sheep by their willingness to help other people without thinking what's in it 
for them. See, a sheep does something for other people, but does not think what's in it for me. Sheep are the people who give food to the hungry, they give drink to the thirsty, they invite in the strangers, they give clothing to the naked, they take care of the sick, they visit the poor, they visit the, per the prisoner in prison. And not only that, not only do they not think about what's in it for them, they don't even realize that they're doing it. In verses 37 to 39, the righteous people, when Jesus told them that's what they'd done, what did they say? They said, when did we ever do this? We didn't know we did this. So a sheep person is a person who does these things out of love. They do it as a natural response to what Jesus has already done for them. They are so overflowing with the love of God that they've just plain simple got to find an outlet somewhere to help those that Jesus himself so greatly identified with, the needy people and the outcasts of society. Well, if that's how you spot a sheep, how does one spot a goat? Well, interestingly enough, we tell a goat by the exact opposite means. See, in this account, Jesus says exactly the same thing about the goats, but in the negative. Their reaction further incriminates them. Listen to this. It says, Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with me, you cursed ones, and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't get, invite me into your home. I was naked, you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? But he will answer you, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. See, the goats couldn't even see the opportunity to serve Jesus in these situations, let alone act out of love in doing it. See, there's a fundamental difference between the sheep and the goats. Sheep act out of love. Goats never even see the opportunity to act out of love. See, now this is where my previous statement about salvation comes in. This Bible passage is not describing the means to be saved. You can't tell somebody, look, if you want to be saved, you've got to feed uh, people, you've got to clothe people, you've got to, you've got to give them some of the drink, you've got to go visit poor people, you've got to visit the sick people, you've got to do this. No, that's not, that's not right. What this Bible passage is describing is what people do when they've been saved. This is what believers do. It's not a guide to salvation, rather it's a saved person's guide to life. I mean, if you say, I'm a Christ follower, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, now what do I do? Check out Matthew 25. This is what God's children do. If we're truly saved by Jesus and have experienced his love, we'll act in the same way that the sheep did. Now, moving on a little bit, it kind of seems to be a conclusion when you read this story that both the sheep and the goats weren't sure which group they were even in. Did you catch that? I mean... Who? Us? We didn't know we did this. Who? Us? We never saw you. 
They both claimed to have not seen Jesus and were unaware of their own actions, or in the case of the goats, their lack of action. Now, when I was studying uh, this scripture, I found something rather interesting. I found out that if you were a shepherd in Jesus' time, and by the way, most of the shepherds in Jesus' time were probably 10, 11, 12-year-old uh, boys kind of hired and sent out to the fields to watch them. Uh, it's kind of interesting that the sheep in Palestine in the days of Jesus, they all kind of looked the same. Sheep and goats looked a lot alike. And so the shepherd would go out with his staff, and he would often have to search in his flock to figure out where the sheep were, where the goats were. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, well, that kind of sheds light on this image that Jesus uses. Jesus is saying that it is difficult without close inspection to tell sheep from goats. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you to look around, remember, and I said, can you spot the wise people? Can you spot the foolish people? It's kind of hard. If I were to ask you to look around today and say, can you spot the sheep? And then look around, can you spot a few goats? We really had to have a hard time doing that. The reason is, it's pretty easy for us to do good things and think they're good without ever attaching them to a reason why we would even do it in the first place, which would be the love of God. See, that's why it's always good for us to remember this passage. I put it on your outline from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You often hear this read at weddings, but, uh, or part of it. It says, but if I could speak all the languages on earth of angels, but I don't love other people, I'm just going to be a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. If I've got the gift of prophecy, I understand all of God's secret plans, possess all knowledge. If I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love other people, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I do not love others, I've gained nothing. Now what Paul is reminding us is this, that it's possible to have people in the church who do all sorts of good things, but love is not a motivating factor. It's not at the center of their actions. They are goats, if you will, in sheep's clothing. That's why, and here's the final point, the motive for right action, Jesus intensifies this. He raises the bar. He said it's not just doing the action that counts, it's the motivation behind it. Many of you will remember reading earlier in Matthew, if you ever read through it in, in chapter 7, in the great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 14, Jesus says, Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, this is the essence of all that's taught in the law and the prophets. Jesus is telling us to first think how we would like to be treated. How would you like to be treated? How would I like to be treated? And then go out and treat other people the same way. Now, that's a pretty hard thing to do. I think all of us would admit that's pretty hard to do. But in verse 40 of our text, Jesus gives us a really great incentive to do it the right way. He says, I tell you the truth in verse 40, 
just as you did it for the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. There's the motivation. Why would I do it? It's out of love for God. It's out of love for Jesus. Not only do we now act as if we're acting for our own good, but we must act as if we're doing it for Jesus. So when you see a beggar on the street, when one of the brothers and sisters in faith is sick, when they're in prison, when they're hurting, whatever, we need to ask ourselves, or think to ourselves, this person is the next best thing to having Jesus here with me, and then act accordingly. I've been asked so many times, I, I never quite understand why people ask this, but when they know I work in the what has been known as the bloodiest prison in America for a number of years, you know, a place that's full of people that are there because they're murderers or because of some sexual crimes or they're habitual criminals, they, they, they kind of wonder, why would you go there and be with those kinds of people? People who ask that question are not seeing Jesus in those people. Now, in a strange sort of way, when I look at those 5,108 men, and when I get a chance to teach them or sit down at the table and eat with them or sit down and talk with them, it's almost as if I'm thinking to myself, this person is the next best thing to having Jesus here with me. The reason I would love this person is because of how much Jesus has already loved me and that overflows into the life of other people. I mean, imagine what a, a vision like that would do for our world. It would change, it would change the way people would act. Wars would probably come to an end. Famine would be a thing of the past. Uh, homelessness would be non-existent. Social ills in our society would all go away if we would just look beyond ourselves and see Jesus in the face and the eyes of other people. But this is not easy today. It wasn't easy back then either. I want to end this morning by reading to you a short story. I think that will illustrate this passage pretty well. It's written by William Barclay, and I found it as I was studying through his Gospel of Matthew. He writes a story about a man who's called Martin of Tours. And uh, some of you may know that if you've been in the military, because uh, people who do chaplaincy work in the military often are given uh, an, an award a medal, which is the St. Martin of Tours Award. But let me read you this story about Martin of Tours. This is what William Barclay writes. Martin was a Roman soldier and a Christian. One cold winter day as he was entering a city, a beggar stopped him and asked him for alms. Martin had no money, but the beggar was blue and shivering with cold, and Martin gave what he had. He took off his soldier's coat, worn and frayed as it was. He cut it in two and gave half of it to the beggar man. That night he had a dream. In it he saw the heavenly places and all the angels and Jesus in the midst of them. And Jesus was wearing half a Roman soldier's cloak. One of the angels said to Jesus, Master, why are you wearing that battered old coat? Who gave it to you? And Jesus answered softly, my servant Martin gave it to me. Friends, which are you going to be? Are you going to act like a goat? 
missing opportunity after opportunity to show Jesus that your love for him is real? Or will you just fail to act in times of need? Or are you going to be a sheep? Are your actions going to flow naturally from the love that Jesus has shown for you? Are you going to help people without any thought of reward? Are you willing to do it without anybody ever coming up and saying thank you or patting you on the back or making any big deal over it? You know, that's a high calling for all of us believers to just do it because God has already done it for us. But as shown in the ending verses of this story, there are high rewards. It says that those who are judged righteous, there's eternal life. But those who are judged as unrighteous, the goats, there's only eternal punishment. Friends, I would pray that all of us would decide to be sheep. Sheep for Jesus. That'd make a neat t-shirt, wouldn't it? I'm a sheep for Jesus. Working out of our gratitude for the immense love shown to us by and through him. On your outline, I put a prayer of Paul at the end, and I would pray that this would be your own personal prayer. I'd pray that it would be a prayer that you would learn to pray for other people, and a prayer that we could pray for one another here at First Lutheran. Paul simply says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May God grant that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we come before you and we lift up members of our families. For our families that live close to us, who live around us, we pray for people that uh, are in need of uh, help and hope and healing. Lord, there are many people within our midst that are affected and afflicted by disease, they're going through difficult times, who seem to be battling between good and evil. We pray that you would surround them with your love and care and thank you for those people who see Jesus in their faces, who see Jesus in their eyes, who so willingly and so easily step forward to be Jesus to them as well. Father, we continue to pray for this congregation, that you bind us together in love, that you bind us together in unity. Make us one big force all working together. To do good, not, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of those people that you so identified with. Lord, as we come forward to this Thanksgiving time of the year, give us opportunities to sit back and to relax a little bit, to find some time to think about the many blessings that we have, and then not to rejoice just on a given day or a given time of celebration but to thank you each and every day. Lord, for this and such a wide variety of other things, we just gather them together in that wonderful prayer that Jesus himself taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, Before our final blessing, I want to share with you just a short story. Some of you have heard me study before that when I've traveled, I've asked that you pray that God would put an unbeliever in the seat next to me. You know, it's kind of like saying, help me see Jesus in their eyes, and maybe I have not finished there. Last Sunday, I was preaching in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I made the mistake again of asking people to pray that God would put an unbeliever in the seat next to me as I flew home from Chicago to Dallas. When I got to the airport, I thought I had, well, I shouldn't say I thought of it, you know, I did not take the flight that the people were praying for. I caught an earlier flight by a couple of flights. But you know when you fly standby? Do you know which seat they give you first? I don't care how many miles you got. I asked for an upgrade. You get the middle seat. It's then that I began to pray not Lord put an unbeliever next to me, it was Lord put small people next to me. <laughs> it's already bad enough having me in the middle. Even we flip up the arms. But then lo and behold, God answered the prayer in two ways. He put smaller people next to me, and he put two unbelievers next to me. I'm going to show you a little bit why I'm telling you this story. And I don't want you to think it's about me. You, when you open yourself up to this, and the conversations on an airplane almost always start this way. And it's like, who are you? <laughs> Hi, I'm Barry. I'm, I'm, I'm Robert. I'm Jane. Are you going home? Yep, going home. Where are you going to? One gal says Flower Mound. The other guy, another Garland, I think, in the area. And I said, I'm going to Texarkana. They go, oh, you know, they'll drive you. I said, tomorrow morning. So what do you do for a living? Both of them account representatives, that's kind of good, uh, but when you say you're a pastor, not everybody wants to ride next to a pastor. <laughs> Believe it or not, now you might like to ride next to one, I don't know, but a lot of people don't. It was quiet for a bit, and I was thinking, oh great, now they know I'm a pastor, nobody wants to talk to me. <laughs> and so I said, could I show you some pictures? And they go, yeah. And they already knew I had kids that live in Bedford. They knew I had a grandson at UNC. So I thought for, I knew for sure that they thought I was going to whip out the wallet and the family pictures. Instead, I reached down in my bag and I pulled this out. Y'all recognize this? Because if you don't have one, I got more up here. I'd be glad to give you one. And I said, I just want to show you some pictures real quick. I pulled it out. And I said, it isn't going to take long. And they both kind of looked over, and I talked about Jesus. I talked about God. Amber knows this forward and backwards already, about God, no beginning, no end. And I began to explain all of these pictures to them. I kind of laid it down in front. We went through these pictures. And I said, I'd like to give this to you. And the young lady said, I'm never going to remember what all of those pictures mean. And I said, 
That's why it's all written out for you on the back. In fact, they've got one for both of you. They took it, and I asked if I could pray for them. I just prayed a very short prayer. Just thank them for being on the plane. Pray that they had a good time when they got home with their family. Now, I'm not going to tell you that we prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm not going to tell you that these people immediately confessed Jesus. All I'm telling you is that when you look at other people as being people that Jesus sees as important, just like the text says today, it might just move you to get outside your comfort zone. I told them they might want to go to a church. And uh, they kind of, yeah, I, I suggested my kids at church. That's really weird. Missouri Synod Baptist encourages people to go to a Baptist church, but that's okay. It's a good church. The seed was planted. They walked off the plane. I may never, ever see them again. It's the same way with all the people. I don't know how many people you're going to touch in the next couple of days, friends. Thanksgiving, <coughs> shopping. I mean, you're going to be able to smell first class if you're in the community in a couple of days. Keep up. Sliding with credit cards. Go through the machine. Look at people differently. Don't look at them as shopkeepers. Don't look at them as people in the restaurant who are waiting on you. But look at them as people who need Jesus. See Jesus in the eyes of other people. That's just my admonition. Not just to you, but to me as well. And if you need a couple more of these things, I'd be glad to give them to you and let you share. Now, we're going to close. You don't need your worship folders. Stand up. I'm going to help you with this. Join hands with somebody. Go across the aisle. Amber, you can slip down the aisle over here. Go across the aisle. No sin against that. And you just need to repeat after me. We are the body of Christ known as First Lutheran Church. We are the body of Christ known as First Lutheran Church. Together we commit to faithfully loving Christ. Faithfully learning Christ, and faithfully living Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Let's remain standing to sing our closing song, the two verses of Crown Him with Many Crowns.